Alright, so we just had a real fun time of technology here, right? Fun isn't a word you could use for it. Yeah. Yeah, I would describe our relationship with the recording technology over here as the worst thing happening to anyone, anywhere, right now. In the world, right now. In the world. Actually, no, no, let's not, we gotta go over the top. I think it's the worst thing happening to anyone in New York City. <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, I heard the new MTA director is also having a really rough job, like, you know, just approval numbers are really down, you know, <laughs> for all the trains. The trains people are riding day in and day out like horses across the expanse of the old west <laughs> oh but man i really wish that i was like more bantery right now i don't really know how one turns that on that's fine that's fine i think that um when it comes to banter it's a bit like how you can't smell anything when you've got it i think also your ability to wisecrack goes down yeah i don't know maybe it's like I haven't had enough coffee. I don't know. Remember that like bit from from Thirty Rock? I sure do love French fried potatoes. No, you don't, Oprah. Oh yeah, the improv thing. Yeah, I think it's a. Also, let it be said that there is something probably innately alienating about the uh, distant form of recording because like. Uh, I'm going to peel back the curtain bit. We're doing a you know remote call thing right now. We're trying it out for the episode. It's why it's going to sound like we're fucking underwater. And normally we are right the fuck in front of each other. Like I can see the whites usually, of his eyes. I can see the fear. This from across the table. It's uh, it's 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 nice. It's sort of intimate. This is um, you know, I've got a pair of headphones on. They are not great headphones. I bought these like a year ago or so, so that I could play. Overwatch, I'm pretty sure, on my uh, on my PlayStation with you know various people. That's uh, as of right now. Um, I never really intended to use these for podcasting, but um, you know, like uh, what is the thing? Lemons, lemonade. Yeah, when life gives you lemons and it can't smell the lemons, make lemonade. And I am using sort of a work type of headset for this. The thing, well, uh, the thing is that uh, it's enough headsets. It's at least a decent enough headset that Audacity recognizes yours. It's Deep. true, true. Mine is a uh, mine is a like computer has, won't even deign. Yeah, it has less to do with your headset, I think, and more to do with the Mac version of audacity just consistently vomiting blood like sometimes i edit this thing at work when i'm not working on a mac and the program and apple just do not play super nice with each other yeah apple seems to just hate the idea that you could download audacity onto it and just goes out of its way basically at every turn to make sure that it does not work at all i'm expecting Um, a member of the fucking corleone family to show up and say (laughs) GarageBand is going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Sorry, Ron, there are only two kinds of Corleone impressions that I would have access to, bad and vaguely racist, and I chose just pure bad. I mean, was Marlon Brando's accent even an Italian accent? I think it was just Marlon Brando's just doing a voice. I don't know. I don't know if anyone... I don't know if anyone, like... I think it's Marlon Brando. National first, second gen, or otherwise, that actually sounds like that. I think it's Marlon Brando just pretending that fucking asthma. I wonder if he did at that point. No, I mean, he lived for several decades after that movie, so I have to imagine he was probably not 
in the middle of dying, but it's nice to imagine. It's nice to imagine, and I don't know Hollywood people having access to a grade of healthcare unavailable to the rest of us. Like he could be a fucking cyborg by now if he wanted to. Oh, I just I fucking just tasted blood. I I had this bottle of my favorite wine. It's kind of like it was mostly empty, and I just finished it off just like the last couple of drops. And now the fucking blood's in the water because I want to open the second bottle that I got. But wine delivery is expensive, and you know like. I'm gonna have to conserve that shit just a little bit. I mean, you're pretty close to a uh, a liquor store with what I'd call impressive quarantine measures. Like they only let one person inside at a time. They practically hose you down. That's actually pretty. Oh, this, what this is Henry Hart's, right? Yeah, yeah, that Henry Hart's. Okay. It's a place that has a lot of meaning to our many viewers who are in Bay Ridge, New York. Now, um, uh, speaking of the blood in your mouth, today's subject. Uh, well, actually, I should lead in a bit more smoothly than that. But there's a lot of. Uh, blood, human misery, etc. in today's subject. You see, with all our expanded times, I thought that Sam and I should expand ourselves, like, spiritually as we lose. Historically, what we've been doing is we've been watching the first few episodes of a series uh, and then giving giving y'all our impressions on it. Uh, Which is good for, you know, like, small conversations, hot takes, that sort of thing, but... um, Oh, steaming. Steaming. Inferno. Oh, 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 is it? okay. I thought I thought there was like some term that I was, you know, heretofore unaware of. Uh, yes, um, steaming. Uh, it, so it's pretty decent for for small discussions, you know, like bullet points, that sort of thing. Uh, you get a good, you can get an okay sense in you know three or four episodes of you know like any strengths that the show has, weaknesses that it has, but you're not really able to take apart, you know, its narrative thrust, you know, like throughout the entire course of the show. So and to the reason mi- that we did this is because, you know, the two of us have, you know, full-time jobs outside of this. We have, you know, a limited amount of time to do, you know, any sort of recording in any given time. It's actually been something of a chore, you know, carving out, you know, the, uh, I want to say like five hours or so necessary to sit down, watch a few episodes of you know a given show, and then spend a couple of hours recording content that'll that'll then get edited down to you know like an hour and a half to an hour. So um, I thought would give us a little a bit of a spiritual enlightenment would be to return to the foundry of Weebdom and uh, do a little series, not uninterrupted because you know we want to talk about other shit on the way too, but as long as we are locked the fuck inside. We are going to be watching through the entirety of the original Mobile Suit Gundam 0079 and as a follow-up Legend of the fucking Galactic Heroes (laughs) The fucking Mount Everest of mecha shit even if it is not in fact a mech show (laughs) And I highly expect that halfway through one of these series a man in a black hood is going to walk up to me from across the desert and try to tempt me off the path. <laughs> I um, so this is this is going to be kind of fun for me. I think um, you have read the Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin manga, which is the you know like the manga adaptation of the original uh the original series. This is going to be my god. I want to say third time with uh with seventy nine here. Third um, time. I I, I want to say third time i think i first watched it in its entirety entirety because um when it originally aired um like on toonami or whatever right mm-hmm. i think i 
caught some of it, but it because um, it aired around 2001, it started airing the summer of 2001. This uh, this bit's going to be full of all sorts of trivia and shit. I did like a little bit of research um, going into this. Uh, it started airing the summer of 2001, and you will never guess what happened in the fall of 2001 that uh, kind of soured broadcasters on the idea of violent children's television. Ooh, um, the um, one-year anniversary of um, Bush Jr. being sworn into office. <laughs> but yeah, there were also other no, but events. That happened February. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, once once uh, you know we started playing Holy Wars, the punishment due at double volume, uh, it yeah, lost it got, a bit of the flavor. It got well. It got very much shit canned. Uh, they tried it twice. It got shit canned. Shit canned twice. The first time because nine eleven had just happened, and the second time because they tried it on tsunami and it just like did not do very well in the numbers. Um, and so we had to wait. Honestly, several years until, you know, like, streaming became a thing. Uh, and the streaming now tends to mean, you know, streaming services. Streaming then meant, you know, you know, you know. Theft? Theft. Questionable legality. Anyway, that was how I first watched this series back when I was in, uh, I just graduated high school, I believe. I think that was the, uh, it was the summer after I had graduated high school. Um, and, you know, he looks back on that period and that old country song, Those were the best years of my life. That might not be country. That might be like the, I don't know, black to white version of some kind of musical microaggression, but whatever. Oh, you're thinking the of Brian Adams. Brian Adams is, uh, I think the genre that you could call Brian Adams is, I don't know, like tame white bread 80s something or another. Is he Toby Keith or ACDC? Brian Adams? Yeah, which one of those two guys is he? He's definitely neither of them. I would say, um, <laughs> I would say if uh, he's like if Bruce Springsteen sucked and didn't actually mean anything when he said things. Oh, um, uh, to the uh, Brian Adams fans, you can send any feedback to admin at reddit.com. Yes, admin at reddit.com. Oh, um, just to add a little another sliver of context, uh, for this first episode of The Great Pilgrimage, we did episodes 1 through 8 of Mobile Suit Gundam. We're going to, I think it's, I think Mobile Suit Gundam as a whole is probably going to occupy uh, five-ish episodes, give or take. If we're going to do it, like, if we're going to record every eight episodes, give or take. Um, uh, oh, yeah, it depends how long it takes the uh, the world to recover from side three slamming into our fucking <laughs> immune systems. Man, what is... T to be at the epicenter, like, literally the the actual epicenter of this in America and now kind of the world too. Don't let your dreams be memes, kids. You can, in fact, be fucking famous. Though, at least it's better than being at the epicenter of any incident that happens in these first eight episodes, by the way. The thing or that I was... That happened, you know, before these eight episodes, after these eight episodes, in any subsequent series. Uh, I yeah. think if I had to choose a fictional universe that I would like to live in, um, Mobile Suit Gundam would be so far towards the bottom of the list, I think the only thing that beats it out is maybe Berserk. And to fucking contextualize this, in my memory of this show, I thought of it as something that sort of like leaned into the horrific aspects of war over time and sort of dialed that up. And maybe it does more so, but this thing's fucking first episode has maybe 
30 seconds of pre-fuck life. <laughs> Just the narrator. For the first, uh, I want, for the first, I want to say quarter or so of the series, uh, the, uh, every episode begins with a little narration explaining how the, uh, the war, right? The one year war, as it is going to end up being called, uh, costs the human race half of its population. One half. Um, if you end up watching Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, uh, the OVA, uh, they go into how exactly. They, they break down the numbers for you and how that ended up happening. Uh, most of it was because of a colony drop, which is to say um, a space colony, right? These big cylindrical dudes were, uh, that you know humanity has you know, sort of started to uh, venture out into to, uh, so that they might live in space, right? Um, is the, the sort of cylindrical design is familiar too if you're super into like old sci-fi novels and stuff. They love playing with fun, that like, shit. Buckminster Fuller type shit. Although yeah. I don't think I, I think that's that's not the right name to drop. I, there it was this one professor at this one Ivy League school. I think came up with the idea, and they like they used like his design basically. Someone whose salary design. your tuition subsidized. Yes. Um, so you take one of these, you fix some thrusters to it, right? Engines, whatever. You put some heat shielding on it, and you just drop it into orbit and see where it lands. In this case, it was Sydney, Australia. Uh, it broke apart in half in atmosphere. The debris sort of just scattered across North America. And then once, even after the initial impact on both, you know, Sydney, Australia, and, you know, just the greater just North America, when you factored in... The dust that is kicked up, the natural disasters, famine, starvation, uh, disease, etc. It's estimated that this one incident caused the death of all half of all life on Earth. And that happens before this series even begins. So this is and the world that we are living in right now. This is the world in which Amuro gets to enjoy his life in his room for, once again, I think all of 30 seconds before uh, things pop off of the giant robots. And... Uh, that whole scenario that Sam just described in loving erotic detail. Once again, one of the, most the shows what, things I've ever seen in an anime. Just having the having the narrator kind of dispassionately break down the numbers for you. That entire episode, fucking masterpiece. But like, I think I'm only ever going to watch that once. Fuck that. It doth it doth be like such. But you have to imagine this running on fucking tsunami next to I don't know Code Lyoko and Tenchi Muyo. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Tenchi going to date this week? Find out after we explore 9-11 times 3 million. <laughs> and uh, that may have stymied some of Gundam's early growth in the States until fucking Gundam Wing brought the boy bands and drone warfare version of it over. Well, here's the thing. Um, timeline thing right here. Uh, Gundam 79, they brought over because of the success of uh, Gundam Wing a year earlier. Gundam Wing is tame as fuck um it w i would say it oh yeah the scale of human topic. tragedy in gundam wing is like i don't know what if the no russian scene from call of duty happened in mecha world yeah. whereas in uh, most gundam is, you know, series like they are and everything like that but uh, ooh, man it's not that bad yeah in gundam wing uh everything has a, a sort of genocidal skill implications by the way that thing you're talking about how early they introduced the fact that half of uh, the human population has already gotten ganked in this war mm-hmm it kind of makes it 
unintentionally funny whenever the narrator or a character, and it might just be a translation issue, but whenever someone talks about the war intensifying, all I can say is, that's mathematically impossible. Yeah. They've already killed half of the people. Well, okay, Everything so after like, that is a denouement. Later on, perhaps, um, perhaps it's after the fact that this was decided, um, but it is sort of generally understood, you know, throughout, like, the fandom in the setting, like, in setting, canonically, the uh, Mobile Suit Gundam series takes place during the phase of the war where things are kind of winding down this sort of seems like um almost just people kind of bewilderedly looking up from what they've all just done to one another and trying to figure out where to go from there and yeah they're still fighting and whatnot but you sort of just get this sense um especially as the series goes on and finds its feet that humanity is just so utterly shell-shocked by what they've all just done to one another. I mean, the um, the sort of erstwhile main antagonist of the series, a, uh, a man named Degwin Zabi, who is the sort of uh, the sovereign of the um, the Principality of Zeon. The it might be more accurate Nazi. to describe him as the antagonistic figurehead. If you say main antagonist, I think it's Giren screaming, cackling, well, just that, belting Hitler the quotes that, into, the, into the fucking void. Oh, sure, sure, but I'm not there yet. That's why I'm calling him the erstwhile main antagonist. He is the guy who, you know, uh, designed this war, right? This was sort of all his, not idea, definitely not his design, but, you know, his doing. Um, uh, he is, you know, the, uh, who, what, who turned... Zeon, right, from just another, you know, cluster of space colonies in the uh, in the Mobile Suit Gundam universe. There are various different clusters of colonies, of several dozen each, you know, these big, long, cylindrical guys, um, referred to as sides, right? One of these sides, I believe it's side two, is it side two or three? I can never remember. Um, it's, it's three. Three? Side three um, has declared independence, dubbed itself the Principality of Zeon, which is sort of this, it's like space Nazi Germany with a sort of, um, I would call it like almost a flowery aesthetic. I don't know. How would you, how would you describe the uh, visual look of the principality of Zia? It's look at, it's kind of like the cultural memory of like a sort of, um, monarchist kind of aesthetic, like a fucking, like yeah. what you imagine, what, what you imagine a, f- a fancy French court looks like through the filter of someone who grew up as a Nazi. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good description of it. It's so I always sort of it's it's got yeah, a like pseudo aristocratic like thing, a pseudo aristocratic kind of a uh, 18th century sort of aesthetic repurposed, you know, by uh, postmodern fascists, right? To give the effect of I don't know. I mean the the good effect it has is that before favorite. they've exposition dumped anything, you see them walking around and you're like, oh, that is uh that is not a democratic republic. No. My original point here, right, is that uh, Deg Winzabi, the leader of the Principality of Zeon, is already, by the time the series starts, we don't meet him until later on, but you sort of get the sense that he's kind of just like been like this for a while, is so fucking exhausted of all of this, right? Is so beside himself with guilt and grief and, oh God, what has happened? That he's looking for an end of this an end to this. Everyone's looking to for an end to this, but they can't really put the genie back at the bottle, right? They've already done this to one another. Yeah, the um, genie is atomic. The genie remembers who killed its genie friends in the last skirmish. The genie has the names of its dead comrades tattooed on its arm and is screaming into the void. That's not a scene from Gundam, that's just me riffing, but um... 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's um, sort of bigger structure stuff. I think maybe we should hone in on some of the stuff that's particular to these eight episodes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, although I think it's uh, it's important to lay some groundwork, just you know, so, so that you know the the listener who is not too familiar with the uh, with the context here can sort of uh, have, like I said, a, a base of knowledge upon which to uh, draw some context from when we're talking about the actual like meat of the series. That's true. Uh, but when it comes to these like starter episodes, though, I think what's interesting to know is they don't really try to dump all this. Um... Stuff out, you know, once actually, which definitely lends a lot to your. That, that is true. Right? I'm, um, I'm talking a whole lot about shit that's revealed later in the series, shit that reve- that is revealed in, you know, like the novelizations or yeah. in uh, side projects, uh, spin offs, that sort of thing. And I have to say, it's occasionally kind of fillery, but I was pretty taken with it. Like, I think that good integration into a fantasy or sci fi setting is often like boiling a frog. And I don't know. When, I think that. A mistake that a lot of mid-tier to low-tier fucking fantasy and sci-fi stuff, and even some good things that are just that just get away with it for other like artistic reasons, is that they tend to work a lot off of a I don't know presumed genre norms. I guess like hey, you've seen this before, you understand this. Come on, let's move, let's move on. Or worse yet, maybe the creators just so in their own head in this setting they don't understand that there's basic sort of groundwork of understanding to be laid and. Oh, the, uh, this the thing Netflix doles out live its... action Witcher series has that problem, uh, and that like um, I think it's it's so allergic to exposition that it does not understand that exposition is neither a good nor bad thing. It is just a neutral thing that is easy to do wrong, so they don't do it at all. Oh man, yeah, like that's the fucking tragic side effect of people just crawling out of writers' workshops with the words "exposition bad" tattooed on their arms. Bad show, don't tell, and then. And then they don't show anything, nor do they tell anything. Just things kind of happen, people talk about things, nothing makes sense. God, so I'm like, very disappointed with that show. I mean, yeah, the way a lot of fucking sci-fi things play with that, or, or fantasy, in this case, since we're dunking on the Witcher adaptation today, which makes sense, it's kind of a bag of dicks, but uh, the it would be like if fucking Martians... Like made up fucking Earth circa World War Two as a fucking fantasy setting, and they just never like took the time to explain what fucking gunpowder was, or <laughs> or where exactly Europe is, and why it's so why it's so much more important than some other places in this fucking conflict. Well, because they're Martians and they have no understanding of human morality, they don't. They're not even sure who to root for. Yeah. Right. It's like who's the bad guy here? Is it is, is it French people? Is it these not? Z's, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, this thing starts out sort of keeping this whole space operatic thing that we've been um, expounding upon at length. They, it starts out trying to keep it sort of small. You've got um, yeah, it's um, like it basically just starts with Amro's equivalent of a suburb within one of these fucking colony things, just getting dicked by two. I almost said infantrymen, but it's two guys in giant robots. Robot infantry. There's like actual infantry, I guess. With being, you know, that does fighting in this war, but they are supremely unimportant at this phase of the fighting. That is true, that is true. Um, another thing I noticed in these early episodes is that they spend a lot more time on, like, infantry, infantry, not just mech, but, like, people with handguns combat than I remembered in this show, which is, in- which is interesting. I think early on, right, um, Yoshiki Tomino, right, who is the mastermind of the whole Gundam franchise, this all comes from his head. Um, he was praise the maestro. 
praise the mage joe he was writing this series more or less as a reaction to the super robot genre right that he'd been working with you know for that entire decade this comes out in 1979 um at the very end of this of the golden age of super robots right which is um is it like mazinger and all that shit mazinger it's always about um just some heroic human kid with a giant robot versus one of two types of antagonists a a supervillain or b aliens and he's coming from this place where these stories do not feel like they're um I'm not going to say grounded in reality, but um, they're very difficult to relate to. They are entertaining, certainly, right? Um, but none of these characters feel at all human. None of these stories have very much of a human element to them. So that is what he's doing in um, in creating the real robot genre. And he very much is responsible for creating the real robot genre. Yeah, if you're part. a music head, you might think of a... Like early prog reacting to pop reacting to a sort of pop or early punk reacting to that sort of genesis dominance era and the gundam is very much a product of that type of reaction like someone's looking at the work around them they don't really feel it has x creative essence anymore and they took things in a different direction and i'm and really like glad the, it happened because it spawned yeah. a minor addiction for me so i need to put together some of those fucking gunpla things from japan oh yeah i've got one or two of those just kicking around i've got nothing but time to put them together um this actually brings me to the um to the character of Amuro Ray, right? Mm-hmm. Who um was uh basically it's not one to one, but Amuro Ray was Shinji Akari twenty five years before Shinji Akari. Uh he was, you know, sort of the um the reaction to the kind of um wonderbred, you know, like happy go lucky, determined, you know, like vaguely determined, you know, loves his friends, et cetera, et cetera. Um super robot protagonist they're always very you know hot-blooded and everything and um is literally any teenager who is put into the cockpit of a robot and told it literally all depends on you i'm so sorry and to stave off a mode of potential hypocrisy here i know that i have spent excess time and effort dumping on various franchises that present their protagonist as it's you and i oh, think there's sure, a, there is a think. difference between it's you and a sort of genuine every man kind of approach right amuro is not supposed to be you he very much can be you but amuro is supposed to be any fucking human being in these circumstances any you know like 15 year old fucking 15 year old boy in these circumstances like i remember being 15 i would have fucking died it's extraordinary that amuro didn't and they do a good job of what then makes them particular is that just the sort of compounding of events throughout the series that are they keep things basically consequential which is something that definitely a lot of times does not happen with it's you because they stay you and they will always be you you yeah i think uh, now and forevermore you know the thing about amro is that uh when i was first kind of getting into the series right amro was sort of um decried by a number of fans as being um what would you call it like whiny moody angsty or whatever Uh, and i think time has been very kind to this uh characterization especially as um we start talking a little bit more openly about you know the concept of trauma and mental illness and um you know post-traumatic stress and such and how it is it is um handled not necessarily i'm going to say with 
a plum, but the effort is definitely made to sort of show and portray how a teenager is going to react to the situation that he's put in like this. It's interesting, yeah. Um, like, it's not necessarily one of the series's um, fixations or core things, but there, but it definitely does. I don't know. It takes a pit stop at. Oh, hey, this kid has to try to kill someone for the first time. He's yeah. uh he's having some trouble with it. I think I, it, one of my favorite scenes early on in this series is when he comes back from like his first big pitched space battle. Right, he comes back and he's just absolutely fucking exhausted this battle was like maybe 15 minutes long i want to say like he was out in space you know like just fighting other robots you know other human beings and he understands that they are other human beings that's that is the thing no attempt is ever really made in this series to um make it seem like oh yeah it's just like robots or whatever it's oh like, yeah no, there is not the samurai jack oil spling <laughs> no this it's, it's, kind of thing does any anytime another uh a mobile suit blows up there's gonna be a good chance that you show you know the uh pilot dying in its cockpit it um, is pretty uh gruesome at times like not gruesome in the uh, slasher sense but just in terms of like making you feel the death there i actually wrote in my notes wow that was on toonami right after tenshi in fucking tokyo yeah um who's tenshi kun going to flirt with this week find out now after examining the sins of man in the ever spiraling chasm of warfare yeah, what I what I love about that scene is just he just exhaustedly just goes to his room, you know, just finds his quarters from the Gundam, like avoids talking to anyone, and just kind of collapses into sort of tra- traumatized half sleep. Um, and I I love that it was a very short little scene, um, but it did so much, and it's just uh, it kind of just explains everywhere that his character goes, you know, from there. As you know, sort of, yeah, he he does somewhat recover, I guess, but he is so forever changed and not for the better. Like you just sort of get the sense that um, you know, Amuro for the rest of this series and every other you know subsequent um, entry that he appears in in the franchise, he appears a couple a couple more times throughout the franchise. Is sort of um, not necessarily as a main character anymore, as you know, every new series has a new main character, right? But as just kind of an elder character, right? Um, who's who's been through this? Who knows the score, right? And well, he's, he he isn't in too many of the other series. Though. I mean, he's definitely in Char's Counterattack in a major way, and he's in Zeta, Zeta. for that. He's whole in Zeta arc. and Char's Counterattack uh, for the most part. Those are the only two other series that he shows up in. And uh, but the um. By the way, if you guys want some weirdness, the- I saw fucking Char's Counterattack before fucking before I even read the origin. Well, you <laughs> definitely Zeta. saw one of the best mech fights ever animated like still to this day i mean and there have been some really really impressive shit i'm not trying to be it, all it's just funny about to think that. of myself like seeing that fight out of context like man these two really aren't uh, super into each other <laughs> <laughs> and then you just sort of have to watch yeah no and then mobile suit gundam is i don't know i think once you get through the first series of mobile suit gundam right mobile suit mm-hmm. gundam is just the story about how these two people's hatred for one another dooms entire generations yeah the fucking war of the roses caused global warming by the way speaking uh, of amuro i thought maybe we should talk a bit about the uh early episode appearances of one char asnable who we dedicated an entire fucking episode of this podcast to all right yeah so just i'll just assume that everyone's listened to that so i don't have to go like 
too far into you know like him and his backstory and everything like oh yeah, that. yeah, yeah. less yeah. table setting of who he is just more like what you think what you think of um well it's or really interesting like because to watch his early early appearances i guess well, early on in this show, right? You know, I, I go into this show having watched it before, having consumed basically all of the uh, the universe century timeline. Minus, I don't think I ever watched um, one or two of the OVAs, I think, right? Oh, shit. Sure. So you've seen, like, all the one-off movies and stuff? And... Uh, I think it's the first MS team thing. First, uh, oh, the eighth MS team? That's a fantastic series. You should see it. Um, I've seen that, Stardust Memory. I've seen uh, War in the Pocket. I've seen Thunderbolt at this point. I don't think I watched... No, I didn't see Narrative. I guess I should watch Narrative. It's like kind of a sequel to Unicorn. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, whatever. So my bona fides, right, out of the way, right? Like knowing... Oh, yeah, knowing a realist mecha do, fan in the world. Yeah, knowing what I do about the uh, this particular, you know, like setting, right? It's interesting kind of going into the first, you know, 10 episodes or so, right, of the first entry when there is no minutia to immerse oneself in and kind of see them kind of poking around at what the setting is going to end up looking like. And uh, there, it, there's interesting choices that they make early on that they come to sort of um, revise later on and things that they make early on that stick uh, very much. Something that's not quite revised, but they just don't care as much about it anymore. I know this isn't the char thing, but this is just something that stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. They make a really big point in the early series here that the that the Gundam is self-learning. Yes. And as we get all the psychic main characters and fucking ace types and progression technology and all that, that is one element of the machine itself that really seems to be de-emphasized later in the series. Like... Somewhat, it comes to be renamed. Um, I think uh, they they when whenever they talk about like psychomu and psycho frame systems, that is the shorthand that they gave to the whole like self learning Gundam. You know, like the pilot influences the software and the software influences the pilot sort of thing. Because um, the word new type right is not dropped until at the very least halfway through this series, maybe longer. I think like some somewhat through the series, there's a scene where you know Amro. Um, Amuro has been debriefed, right, by you know the Federation High Command, and says like, "Oh yeah, they had to scan my brain wave, my brain waves for some reason. Weird, right?" Uh, and that's like the first bit of foreshadowing that you get that this is going to be about you know slightly weirder shit than we've you know been that uh, human evolution might have taken a few left turns on the way to fucking Albuquerque. Yeah, yes. So I think I think that's um what comes of the whole oh yes the Gundam and self learning thing, um although I think yeah definitely they he was writing this a little bit as he went along like I think not entirely as I do know that he had this whole idea for what the series was going to look like um fun fact early on uh Amaro was going to die halfway through this um. Wait, you say Amor was going to die halfway through this? He was going to die halfway through this, yeah. Who was going to take the Federation side reins? Um, kind of Char, and then he was going to end up being the final bad guy antagonist. Uh, what ended up happening is that um, elements, um, elements of the original series, of his original draft for this series, ended up being incorporated into uh, Zeta Gundam, because originally they were going to team up with him for a little while, which that is what ends up happening in Zeta Gundam with uh, them and Char. And then uh, Char's counterattack, where he ends up, you know, like, taking charge of the entire, you know, Zeon faction and becoming, you know, like, humanity's greatest enemy, right? Bold of um, him to assume he was getting the full six seasons and a movie, but I guess you have to have some vision to make things land. 
Well, he was all going to do it in one in one series, right? In one like you know like four core show, and this didn't actually even last the full four cores. I think this series is forty two episodes long out of a planned fifty. It got cut short. It did not get great ratings early on. Like this show, like this franchise could have been stillborn. I'm like, so we happy have to not, but... imagine you are a teenager looking for something to kill time until Fist of the North Star ZX comes on. I made up those two letters, whatever, and. Instead of your fun apocalypse punch em ups, you get to learn about the tragedies of human warfare. And there's just a woman sitting down in a field that used to be the town she grew up in sobbing. That's how episode eight that's how episode eight ends, by the way. Like they- Yes. Uh it was I feel like the world was not ready for Mobile Suit Gundam back in like nineteen seventy nine when they're still uh when we're still in this sort of excited post-Star Wars boom. By the way, can um, we... I know I keep pulling this back into particular, can we talk about that fucking episode? Oh, uh, yeah, it's it's really good. It just I, I think it, the best episodes of this series are just when you're sort of left yeah. with um, the consequences that war has on just people. Yeah, yeah, the short, the, almost a short story kind of episodes, and this one, um, the the premise is pretty simple, because, okay, so they're on their ship, whatever, our, vari- our variation of the Enterprise. Not accurate, if you're a real, if you're a fan of the thing, you'll probably smack me in the dick the next time you see me in person, because I said that, but the point is, main <laughs> ship of the series, right? Mm. And because of circumstances, this thing is loaded down with fucking refugees, which, you know, you tend to pick up across the scale of any war that, you know, you know? counts civilians on the scorecard. And they've, uh, so they're trying to get these people somewhere safe. And this whole episode is framed around, like, we've been doing all these tactical skirmishes until now, but just trying to get, like, these eight sort of high-pitched, occasionally whiny, but understandably so, civilians down to their perceived, like, down, homelands. Down to terra firma. Um, on because Earth. Because they and just want to be out of this. They just want to be out of this whole situation. And, like, you can totally empathize with them. And the whole thing is a bunch of near misses where you're expecting the usual war crimes, but it's almost like one of those fucking hardcore history Dan Carlin asides where it's like, a human story about the time that they came together to let some families have their way. But then it still has to Gundam you in the left testicle because the episode ends with her getting through the town she's been talking about fucking fine this entire time, and it is just this crater, basically. Oh yeah, one of the... uh... One of the uh, she was talking about this place called I think like Saint Kills or something. Saint Agnes, like that. I think. Saint Agnes or something like that. And then one of the soldiers just um just casually mentions, Oh yeah, there used to be a town called Saint Agnes around here. <laughs> and it's still here. And there. Over there a little like a little bit over there too. And I don't know, I just really enjoyed the um slow roll of that and I guess that's the power of having 42 fucking episodes kind of makes me wonder about the whole sometimes when I see some of the I mean shows are definitely a lot more focused now and that definitely benefits them a lot too and a lot of shows exist in the seasonal format that just would not exist when you had to order the full run of a show the full core yeah but sometimes I wonder about losing little asides like this yeah it was uh, it's definitely it definitely seems like the kind of episode or the kind of story they could get cut out of an episode if you had less time to work with it. It's um, why I um I have historically sort of preferred the long term, the sort of the long form uh series to the uh, to the short form ones. It's not like you can't do really you know entertaining things with you know one core or you know two cores for a while. Two cores was just the rule, just twenty six episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of like. 
there are still some shows that do, you know, like the full two cores, you know, Vinland Saga, Demon Slayer, uh, you know, um, they get, you know, they get two, but for the most part, things get one these days. Um, and yeah, you can do things, you, you can do things with one, but, um, having, you know, the full you know span of, you know, 40, 50 episodes, uh, it lets you, if you're good, tell some really interesting little stories with the setting, um, that you're given. We were talking yeah, that was about cool. Char. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about early Char here for a little bit. We get the basics early on. He's talked about up as this hotshot pilot, and well, what's, he has he's put in an instinct position mm-hmm. where, despite all this informed ability, he's facing a neophyte at piloting with just way better gear. It's like you have a sty- It's like you have a styrofoam bat, and the other person has a fucking short sword. You know? Yeah, and you could be like the hottest shit duelist ever, but you're still just got a styrofoam bat. <laughs> Uh, what I what I kind of find interesting about early Char, right, in these first couple of episodes when they're just getting started here, still finding their feet, is um, Char, sort of as a character, right? He's comes to be characterized as the um, the archetypical charming sociopath, right? Um, he literally does not give even half of a shit about other people and their problems, right? Um, and honestly, a number of problems in Zeta Gundam sort of come about because of his unwillingness and incapability of giving a shit about other people and their problems. Incredibly, um, incredibly avoidable problems. Uh, very avoidable problems. Um, however, early on, um, Ashar Azimal is more or less just... Um, they, they go for sort of a father to, to his men kind of aspect. Bit, yeah, he seems to care just a little bit more about the men underneath his command uh, than he does... You know, like, way About later on. other humans later other on. Humans, yeah. Well, I think, like, the turning point for Char's character arc is uh, currently upcoming. Uh, it happens, you know, around 12 or so, if I'm remembering right, uh, episodes into the series. And, yeah, when we get to that, we'll get to that. Because it is one of my favorite moments in the history of the medium that is anime. It's going gonna, it's um, gonna to end up being, like, that episode's going to be, like, 30 minutes that scene and, I don't know, 20 minutes other stuff. Other stuff. <laughs> Because it's so fucking great. Uh, uh, the um, yeah, so Char early on, um, it's it's interesting. They they actually make one choice that I think they perhaps shouldn't have, which is uh, within the first. All right, when he does episodes, that strip, when he does that like hula dance strip tease, I found that kind of weird. Well, he takes a shower. He's a you know he's he's, he's a shapely sort. Um, no, it's that um, we learn who he is very quickly on like he he unmasked. Um, within three episodes of his introduction, which is something that I think perhaps might not have been the greatest idea. Um, the, I, I don't know. And, they haven't even really, once again, in the slow job of these things, they haven't really introduced that his last name has any real, or his identity has any real relevance, though, right? Like, it's, in theory, I, I mean, we'll see how they do this, but in theory, the integrity of it as... A twist or revealed element might be type well, how depending on how they like introduce the framing around that, right? Yeah, I mean, all we know, um, well, well, the information that we are given when he does this, I want to say in episode three, that sounds about right. It's either two or three, is that he is um, related in some way or has some, you know, like a relationship with 
uh, Salem Mass, who is um, one of my favorite characters in this series, and one of the like best examples of just um, circumstance robbing us of. Oh yeah, her of... um, real life voice actress unfortunately passed away before a whole wealth of shit they presumably had planned for could have come into effect. My yes, pocket and... theory is that a lot of her storylines ended up being, if you're into this stuff, uh, carted over to the Minerva zombie character, like just the surviving oh, monarchist th- red kind of thing. I, th- I think um, there's at least a couple of characters that were invented kind of whole cloth um, to sort of serve the role she was supposed to have served. Uh, because the, the way yeah. it happens, uh, Salem Mass, right, is the sister of Shar Aznable. She is everything he is not. Uh, she is just as smart as he is, um, generally speaking, but um, is far more empathetic, has far more shits to give about other human beings, and is really just trying to, um, really just, just trying to do the right thing in any given. Yeah, a lot more, um, a lot more uh, helping people, a lot fewer um, headshot montages. Uh, she she sort of functions as like everyone's emotional rock early on in the series. Like I think I I. I I don't think I ever gave her quite enough credit, but, like, her just being able to be like, this is not the fucking time for this right now, guys. Um, every Anytime, you know, like, uh, Kai Shiden, um, for instance, wants to dick off. Um, I, oh. I, I think I think she deserves a whole lot of credit for keeping shit together. By the way, um, I just want to capture this before before we, like, leave the episode or anything, since you brought up Kai Shiden. This guy is, uh, he's sort of our smarmy, sort of like our smarmy, uh, do I really want to be fighting and dying for nothing? Readable platform, in my opinion. But, uh, he receives the franchises. There's this thing that has a mimetic quality called a bright slap. The bright slap, yes. Which is a blow from the commander to a, from the commander Bright Noah to any given underling that's out of it. Who needs to get their shit smacked, right? And... Um, the editing around this first one is wonderful. Oh, it's so fucking beautiful. It's just, it's in the middle of a combat situation. People are dying slash have died. And he just makes, he just has to fucking make a smart remark. And then here comes Bright Noah, the eternal captain, from right, ha- from, right uh, from the right side of the screen. Just lays into him with his entire fucking body. Yeah, like really get you really get that torso torque, you know? Like I don't know, you go to one of those fucking McDojos, and maybe if they teach you anything useful, it'll just be like make sure to turn your body with the blow to get some. Yeah, uh, it's a real force behind it. Kai did not see it coming, so he was not able to roll with that punch. But um, Bright was certainly able to put all fucking I don't know, like 150, 160 pounds of his frame into it. Yeah, it's a it's it's a fun touch. Um, that said. These early uploads are not perfect. There is a thing within it that it's like you have a nice pie, and inside of that pie, there's a kandiru. <laughs> and for me, that kandiru, and it's another franchise that happens all over the fucking place. So they just have to do is get the show on the fucking network. But just every time you have the fucking, it's time to see what the kids are up to, and there are just these three screeching brats in the middle of these fucking sequences about like. War and its consequences. I just yeah, and then there's these kids because like the attention span of all the like five or like eight. eh, I'm gonna say eight year olds watching this, you know, was important to the. The onboard kids trope is unfortunately very alive and well in these. He's there. I don't get it. I think 
it was handled uh, very nicely, I thought, in um, Iron-Blooded Orphans, where, like, it's like, oh, God, why are there kids here? Like, Iron-Blooded Orphans was this... Yeah, Iron-Blooded Orphans, uh, like, it meant something. It was, gr- it was this great show about, like, yeah, why why has this franchise been about 15-year-olds? It should maybe not... This this is what this is what would happen if it was if it was actually about fifteen year olds they'd just be dangerous sociopaths. Um, I remember one of the most uh, annoying sequences to me. People are being accosted by two Zeon soldiers with, with rifles, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the kids in a zany sequence stomps on one of their feet, giving Amro a distraction. Not Amro. I'm um, Captain Bright. A distraction to float across and lay in some punchies or whatever. It's that kid it's, should be fucking dead. But, yeah, yeah, the kid should probably like he probably. It's tiresome, uh, and it never really went away. Like I think, is three kids in this right, and one of them grows up to be Katz Kobayashi, who is somehow even worse when he was a teenager than he is now when he's a kid. Um, and then there was Shinta and Kum from uh, Zeta Gundam, and I feel like they were in Double Zeta too, just in a slightly reduced capacity. And like every fucking franchise or every fucking entry in this franchise features at least one goddamn kid. And I this, think um, this built-in uh, hole in the armor—they just feel obligated to keep fucking doing it. The one time it's not annoying was Sai Sai Chi in G Gundam because that kid ruled. Um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, do not eat, do not put Mr. Sai Saichi in even the same category as these other little fucks. How oh, dare you? Just... How dare you do that on a Christian podcast? Sai Saichi, technically, he's 16, so like he's not even part of this. He's just drawn to look kind of short. Um, but no, I love that fucking kid. I love him so much. <laughs> Give him the strap. Give him the strap. Um. But um no the uh yeah it is kind of unfortunate that they just kind of always sort of just had to have these fucking kids just floating around and um I remember their legacy in Gundam Double O is this kind of just orphanage's worth of you know war orphans right who just continue to just show the fuck up throughout that particular series. Yep. They sing a song at one point. It's annoying. It's deeply annoying. The more of this franchise I'm actually exposed to, by the way, I appreciate some of the wacky shit that Double O decided. Let's fuck it. Let's see how it goes. We do this differently. Uh-huh. Like, I kind of that was a good, that that show had a lot of um. Interesting oh yeah, spins absolutely. Um, sorry. I so mean, some, oh, for context for um the masses who are being introduced to this for the first time, for, for at least some proportion of you presumably. Gundam has all these AU alternate universe shows, whatever, that are basically self-contained continuity-wise. Like, they're not part of this whole grand space opera universe. But a lot of them feel like retellings of individual stories within the main Universal Century timeline. The Universal Century, by the way, is the name of the main uh, Gundam timeline. Um, every uh, every alternate timeline has its own little name. By the um, way, if trying all of this sweeping interactive warfare stuff seems a little daunting, especially in terms of stuff to watch, I actually recommend some of these uh, AU shows as a way to, I don't know, dip your toes into the way, uh, ocean. Um, as I, I've always maintained that uh, Gundam 00 is the best entry into the franchise, and uh, I honestly, at this point, either Thunderbolt or Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin are the best two entry points into the Universal Century timeline. Um, hilariously enough, this, the first series that they ever made, the first little bit of the Universal Century that we've ever seen, uh, is best appreciated with um, 
honestly like a little bit more background in the series than that however yeah. because uh thunderbolt is so amazingly accessible and easily like quickly watched and digestible and such you could just do that first oh yeah so we're, uh, we're gonna I'll echo our recommendation of gunderbolt from our best of 2010s Gun- episode gunderbolt because it's just it's a great oh, show it's a great it's introduction so to all this nonsense it feels like the distillation of everything that they have ever been going for um, with the Gundam franchise, just in terms of uh, tone, message, and effect. And let's not forget the um, the cool undercurrent. The thing you always sort of also have to get right of these shows. Cool robot go boom. Cool, cool robots do go boom in Thunderbolt. Um, Something oh, and, I appreciated. Cause this oh, show- I should also... Well, hold, on, hold on, there's one thing that I want to... Relating it to Thunderbolt. Jazz. This series has a really interesting uh, soundtrack uh, by, I believe the man's name is. Uh, let me let me look it up again. Uh, his name is Takeo. Takeo Bongo Smith, I believe. I want to say, um, no, not quite that. <laughs> his name is Takeo Watanabe. Um, is the, uh, the the sort of off forgotten composer of this uh, series music and. He puts a lot of very idiosyncratic jazzy bits throughout the show, and it's really cool. A lot in Japan. I I kind of like looking at that, looking at it from the context of you know like where Japan was at musically. Then jazz was super fucking huge in the seventies in Japan, and he's bringing that to it. It's uh, cool. A A lot of the time, the one time I was saying "What are you doing?" was so far was actually wrote this down in episode eight. There was this bongos and horn track playing over this pitched battle um yeah sometimes when they play you know like saxophone over you know horrible war atrocities happening it can feel just a little bit strange but i sort of am of the opinion like this is the reading that i to give this maybe this is not their intention but you know who can ever know what the intention was that um that the choice uh, to use jazz was a you know a choice just to use a you know genre of music that was particularly popular in Japan at the time, yeah. And B, there's jazz. Um, is this kind of controlled chaos that is not uh, impossible to compare to battle and war? Um, and so I like the idea of using jazz as a soundtrack for war, especially when you have all these people in it and, and there are a lot of people present in the oh, we can have to the we got to the reasons that simple gear sucks yes no yes simple who oh you never heard of simple gears okay so this was a fucking show oh my god the concept was that um there are these idols who could um oh well, so turn on robot armor that's powered by music and friendship and but that sounds like the worst fucking version of Macross I've ever seen. <laughs> or I've ever heard of. So, the you have to imagine like the soundtrack to Warfare is I don't know a bad Kesha B side. Anyway, but yeah, Simple Gears is kind of a a ride in a dumpster, and I don't know, maybe some. Now there's too much new bad shit to cover. It's not gonna get an episode. We're never gonna talk about fucking Simple Gears again. Okay. Um. But no. Um. I. I think uh, Takeo Watanabe's choice to have this uh, soundtrack be all jazzy the way it is uh, was one that ends up being like very influential for the sort of feel of um, you know the first 
the first decade or so, I want to say, of the uh, Mobile Suit Gundam franchise. Um, fun fact, um, he was a mentor of Joe Hisaishi, who, um, if you don't know, is the... Um, I don't know. Uh, Miyazaki's uh, go-to guy. Um, ah, cool. Music, right? So um, so this is the so guy... When you say Miyazaki, do you mean... Um... Hayao Miyazaki, yeah. Uh, okay. yeah of, of Ghibli. Um, not, uh, not, not the Souls guy. I think uh, he usually uses... Um, I don't know who his go-to choice is, but I know that the uh, the Bloodborne had a fucking kick-ass score. Um, mm. I like Takio Watanabe's score for this uh, for this series, and I especially like the um, the sound and the feel. Yeah, kind of just going over what I was saying before, the sort of feel that it gives the series uh, throughout its infancy. Um, it's uh, the the jazzy soundtrack is present in Zeta Gundam. It's present in Gundam Double Zeta. I want to say that it's still there, even in Shar's Counterattack. Um, like towards the end of the decade. Um, if that makes sense. I, I mean, change is terrifying, and we do resist it in all its forms. So hopefully, they the, kept that thread going. And... Uh, the one thing though is that uh, it's so overshadowed to me, in my mind, though, by the just impossibly fantastic soundtrack that um iron blooded orphans had oh dude that, that that soundtrack like crescent moon and everything was pecan like it's one of the only oh, like it and thunder obviously have the only bit of gun the music i'll seek out separate to the series on yes i don't know to play while i am punching padded bags to try to stay pretty we it's very important to us as audio based hosts that we stay pretty by the way that's one of our primary uh, career objectives <laughs> Is there anything else I wanted to go over about the these first eight? Oh, I I enjoyed this sequence. This is around episode six in our eight, where uh, Amuro learns the glory of corn. Like they they sort of this whole series like sort of tracks Amuro's progression from how I shot web to walking death force just fucking stacking them yeah and uh this was a, one of a nice break. This was a well delivered break point in that progression. I appreciated that about it. Oh yeah, I think this is the sequence I was talking about where afterwards he just exits the fucking exits his mobile suit and strangely enough does not vomit. I think if I were to ever like if I were to offer, you know, points on how this series could be improved, I think early on he should vomit more. Uh, but yeah, the sequence I said where he exits his mobile suit and goes right the fuck to bed, avoiding all human beings on the way there. Yeah, there's something to that. I feel like he should have had a cigarette. But like yeah, this is what preceded it. Just screaming and destroying and shit blowing up <laughs> but yeah this has been the first step of our walk towards true weeaboo enlightenment halfway through legend of galactic heroes we might just die by the way like i might just my eyes might just glaze to the black of my head and i'll just that is 110 sweet. episodes my dude that's uh that's basically an entire season of this show right there possibly two yeah we uh have, I think I think I think we're definitely going to get it started with uh, this, you know, ongoing uh, uh, catastrophe. Um, but uh, that's it's probably going to extend far after this is all over. Yeah, we may have actual wars in space by the time the Great Pilgrimage is done. I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, this has been Weeaboo Hell. It's Weeaboo Hell. We like sci-fi a lot more than other things. It's uh, it's kind of a. Uh... I think my my favorite three franchises just of all time. All three of them are are sci-fi in some capacity or another. Some harder than others. And thank you for listening. And yes, that is true.
By the way, I just started watching fucking Battlestar Galactica. Ooh, it's good, right? It is incredible so far. It's I'm... so fucking good. Uh, it's it it's uh, it its first like two seasons or so are like some of the best fucking sci-fi I've ever seen on television. Um, it gets a little bit like obvious as they go on that they're writing this on a week-to-week basis, but like that fucking um the hell's it called the uh the miniseries that begins the whole thing fucking incredible electrifying i fucking love it <laughs> there are 12 cylon models fuck um <laughs> uh, no you're, you're, oh, I mean, you're oh god the whole fake the whole fake out we're on a journey to earth speech he gives <laughs> i uh the fucking whiteboard with the population listing on, listed on it is such a great fucking element. Um, apparently, um, so here, here's a fun thing. One of my favorite, you know, like one of my favorite uh, dudes who like ever like you know influenced the sort of look and feel of sci-fi. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie. Uh, he was, um, you know, he of course designed Darth Vader, right? right? He also is the guy who designed the original look of the Cylon, which has been very much updated and all. Like honestly damn near abandoned by the time you know like um by the time we see you know like by the time this series happens because mostly the silence that you see in Battlestar Galactica are you know the human looking ones right right but like the the Cylon centurion that you see every now and again that's like that's uh that's an update of um of Ralph McQuarrie's original design and he designed I believe what the Vipers look like, uh, what the Battlestar itself looks like, all that sort of shit. You know, this is just sort of like a you know, 21st century update of his uh, of his original design. So I just Very love cool. seeing Ralph McQuarrie in things in you know in modern sci-fi. He's died. He died a number of years ago, I think. I think uh, it's not quite 10 years ago, uh, and had been retired uh, for a, a long time before that. Well, at he, least he, he lives was... on in our nerd ass hearts. 